0: everyone just to let you know there was an issue with the audio on my vocals for this episode you'll notice there's a little bit of a background hiss it's not too bad it doesn't interrupt the audio it just is uh, not as uh, high of quality as it normally is justin did his best to clean this up and it doesn't seem to really interrupt much of the episode so anyway i hope you enjoy the episode you're listening to why we do what we do
1: Alright, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am going to be your altruistic host, Abraham. And I am going to be my super selfish, keep all my organs host, Shane. Quickly,
0: before we jump into this, I would like to just ask if you like what you hear during this episode, if you have been a listener to other episodes, consider subscribing to this so that you never miss one of our awesome episodes and you're always up to speed and so that the algorithms look really good for us. And also tell a friend, <laughs> tell someone else to also subscribe In addition, we have a Patreon account, and if you would like to support us, you can join for as little as $1 a month. We're adding that tier, and we're re-updating all of our previous tiers. We're going to be releasing content twice a week on Patreon. Uh, You can get access to uncut episodes, videos of us recording, and all kinds of cool content there. Our notes, bonus episodes, all kinds of stuff. I don't know if I said that already, but some cool stuff at Patreon. So yeah, anything to add to that, Shane?
1: We're really excited to kind of like upgrade that. We've had a Patreon for years if you didn't know. And so, you know, now you do know. And now you know that there's going to be some additional perks, some additional benefits, some additional content. There's going to be free content there as well, but for the most part, yeah, for as little as a dollar, you're going to have access um a lot more stuff than just casual listeners of the show will generally access. So, we're really excited about that.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so let's jump right in to a story that we have. We have a story about four people who all belong in a way To a very small group of like-minded individuals I suppose most of them don't Mm -hmm. know each other in the story but they didn't know each other before joining the group either so they sort of got to know each other so I'm gonna leave it intentionally vague to jump into it should we get going yeah let's do it all right I'll let you take this first part
1: Let's go ahead and start with Brianna Shaw. So Brianna was 29 years old in 2018, so about 31 years old today, and she had end-stage liver disease, which caused her to feel exhausted during most most mundane things. That makes sense. When your organs simply aren't working, your body's going to kind of not work as well as it should, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And because she was in end-stage liver disease, she had been on the organ donor, specifically liver, recipient list for three years. And was, of course, at risk of death because of this. But she didn't qualify for a liver yet because she wasn't, quote unquote, sick enough. And that is that there are other people in line ahead of her that were nearer to death who needed organs immediately. And so as organs became available, they always issued those or provided those to the people who were the most sick who could benefit from that organ. And that's sort of a theme we'll see very commonly throughout this. Is that there
1: are these people who are in need, but there's not enough of a supply to help them all. Right. And so this is standard procedure, right? So when you have a list like this, people will stay on the list and they might undergo increasing numbers of hospitalizations, complications from their disease, all types of things until essentially they're knocking on death's door before they can actually get lucky enough to receive an organ. Now, people might luck out, there might be an abundance of organs available, but you'll see these lists kind of shift and change and move depending on current context, right? So it's not going to be that somebody stays on a list and they're just in that order forever, right? If somebody's kind of maintaining, but somebody else joins the list and they're at a much higher risk, they might move up on that list in that moment. So these lists are kind of variable in that regard.
0: Yeah, sort of got that triage system of... Dealing with the most immediate need first, which it might mean that someone skips a lot of the line and that might mean that you end up sort of moving back in the queue, so to speak. Now, according to the American Transplant Foundation, there are 114,000 people in the United States on a waiting list to receive an organ that will save their life. And a new person is added to that list every 10 minutes of those people. About 13,000 of them are waiting for a liver. These are just large numbers, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. Since you have started listening to this episode, since we started recording, at least one person has been added to the list of people needing an organ donation. And by the end of the day today, by the end of the, you know, your, your day after finishing this episode, about 20 people will have died because they did not receive the organ that they needed. And there are enough organs from living and deceased people to only cover about 68% of the people who are on that wait list, meaning that. The remaining 32% kind of, uh, some of them might get lucky and, and recover, but some of them are not going to.
1: Yeah. I, and you know, it's a bummer. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue with our story. We're going to end the bummer segment for now. So thanks for that, Abraham. We appreciate you just bringing bring the mood down, <laughs> but you know, I mean, honestly, this is a reality, right? And this is, this is something that it's, it's worth talking about. And, and, and while it is an uncomfortable and kind of sad topic, it is necessary for understanding the current need for this type of thing. So with that, let's go ahead and go to the next part of our story. We're going to go ahead and meet Grant. Grant lives in New Zealand and he's in his fifties and he was suffering from renal failure, which is essentially kidney failure. And New Zealand has one of the lowest rates of deceased organ donors. And Grant was basically preparing for the end of his life. I mean, if he's in New Zealand, hopefully he goes to see the Hobbit hole (laughs) where they filmed Lord of the Rings and all that stuff, because that's all there and apparently still up and available, kind of like the buildings in Tatooine. Awesome. You can go visit in Tanzania, I believe it is. Wow. So essentially people with who are in renal failure often undergo dialysis, a process in which a machine replaces the function of the kidney. So basically, instead of using your kidney as a filter, you have to go through and plug into a machine to do that. The machine removes excess water, toxins, and solutes that can take several hours per day, several days a week indefinitely. And that seems like a, not a great quality of life, right? So- And in New Zealand, where Grant lives, there are over 600 people on the donor list for a kidney, a list that continues to grow, but there are only about 120 kidney transplants per year, meaning that many people die while waiting for a kidney. In the US, as of 2017, there were 96,934 human beings on a list waiting to receive a kidney transplant. As a matter of fact, my ex-mother-in-law was on that list for a little bit and was able to receive a kidney transplant because her daughter offered and donated her kidney.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. That's very generous. Yeah. Yeah. And very lucky for her as well. Yeah. So in fact, more people die from liver and kidney disease than Alzheimer's, prostate cancer, and breast cancer. These are very large numbers. It's estimated that 26 million Americans have kidney disease, although most of them don't even know it yet, meaning that people are they're beginning to go into kidney disease, but they don't have any major
1: symptoms that would alert them to this. That's a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to bring us to our main story. So let's go ahead and meet Damien Delaney, which sounds like a comic book character name. It does. I'm not sure if it's the, it's the alliteration or it just is an awesome name. Like, I mean, Damien Delaney is an awesome name.
0: Uh, inappropriate because he's kind of a superhero
1: in this story. There you go. Look at that. I mean, he, it's like he was written into this. Yeah. So in 2018, Delaney was a 57 year old high school teacher and marathon runner living in Los Angeles in the U S of a, and Delaney had a close friend who was suffering from liver disease and Delaney wanted to help. So he offered to donate part of his liver to his friend, which is interesting. Before this episode, you didn't, I didn't really know you could donate parts of livers or parts of organ, organs, but right. we'll talk about that. Yeah. However, his friend's condition improved and no longer needed a liver. But Delaney was already committed and decided he was getting rid of his liver no matter what. He, had, he was done with it. He was tired of this part. He was evicting it. And so he decided that he would donate part of his liver anonymously to some stranger that needed it. So when asked about his motivations, he gave this quote. They have a disease that's out of their control. Their life is dependent on someone coming forward. If I were in that situation, I'd hope that someone would do that for me. End quote. Yeah. So let's be very clear here. Delaney didn't know someone specifically who needed a liver.
0: Not anymore. He just decided, I'm going to have these guys with sharp knives, cut out a part of my liver and give it to somebody. And then he followed through on that. Right. (laughs) And so Delaney received a series of evaluations regarding his financial situation His physical condition, his medical history, and other tests to create a profile for eligibility and compatibility, which we'll get into a little bit of the screening that one has to go through. So then they put him under, cut out a section of his liver, and sent it over to the first person
1: we had introduced, Brianna Shaw. See, people are connected. They don't even know it. So what happened to Delaney is this like kind of like a seven pound situation where he's just going to start kind of like carving himself up and just handing out plates and platters of his own organs to people? No, there's some interesting facts about livers that we want to talk about here. So first livers are one of the most regenerative parts of our bodies and a living donor will donate up to 60% or can donate up to 60% of their liver. And this will grow back completely within two months and will be fully back to normal after a year. That blows my mind. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That's so weird. That's so like, like, I feel like in Spider-Man, when Doc Connor started to, like, look at regenerative experiments and he ended up turning himself into the lizard accidentally, yeah. instead of using reptile DNA, he could have just started looking at the liver process. Like, it's already inherent. That, that I mean, that would make not a great supervillain, right? Oh, the liver <laughs> instead of the lizard. <laughs> but, he turned into a giant liver. <laughs> <laughs> well, only when he was mad, right? Like, when he's upset, he turns into the liver. Yeah, it doesn't have quite a ring to it, I guess. So that makes sense. But, um. Either way, I mean, it just grows back. And so that's that's interesting. It's sort of like those
0: lizards that can regrow a tail. And that seems really bizarre to us. We actually do a version of that with our livers where they they fully regenerate. And I've heard that they can take as much as 80 percent, but I don't think that they ever will. I think the rule is that they don't go above 60 percent of the liver, which also
1: seems like a lot of liver. Yeah, it's more than half your liver.
0: Right. Most donors will remain in the hospital for about seven days after their that sixty percent or whatever percent they took has been removed, and most donors need to remain away from work for two to four ish months. So this might be a good way to get a lot of time off work rather than something more drastic, <laughs> like I don't know, faking your own kidnapping or something random like that. Not that anyone would ever do it, but yeah, yeah. but
1: somebody somebody has done that somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. What's that episode of the Simpsons where Homer like fakes his own death. He throws his like a, like a dummy off a waterfall and it's like this really horrific looking thing, but he, he's, he comes back. Isn't it Homer? I don't know. Somebody does that.
0: They did that on South park where they faked butter's death by throwing a pig off of a building and it (laughs) it splats on the street and covers everybody with like
1: (laughs) guts, but they dress it up like butters It's pretty funny. So, oh, the, uh, the world of getting out of work. So now there's complications from donation. It can actually result in death, but it's only occurred in 0.4% of cases. So Delaney is fine and back to a normal life.
0: Right. And because of his generosity, Brianna's life was saved and arguably her finances as well. Since her donation, she has been able to
1: return to a normal life and actually has some hope for the future. Wonderful. So, although it's strongly recommended that anonymous donors and recipients remain anonymous, they do often seek one another out after some times, right? They do try to connect with each other. And usually the right. recipient seeks out the donor rather than the opposite, right? So, this is the case with Brianna, who wanted to meet her donor and thank him in person.
0: It does make a lot of sense for people who donate. You don't want them going to the person who received the organ and trying to hold that over them and saying, like, hey, like, you owe me something because I saved your life. That would kind of suck. And not that that would ever happen, but that would kind of undermine, you know, the kindness of the donation. Also, it could just create some awkward tension, some some sort of weird power dynamics and whatnot. And so they just try and keep them separated. But those donors might look and just try and say, like, I just want to say thank you because I wouldn't be here otherwise. Yeah. And so there's not necessarily, you know, they're not going to like hold them at arm's length and say, no, you can never not ever see each other. If one of the person, usually I think the recipient does seek out the other, then they, they can. Yeah. And so let's meet our final story character. Her name is Shelly. And I'm going to play an audio clip from a video posted on YouTube. And uh, there's, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And it goes like this
2: The night I met Grant as a stranger,
0: she did not know Grant.
2: Changed my life.
0: Was Friday not? and uh, I'd finished dialysis at the hospital.
2: We were all just down at a uh, bar in Hamilton.
0: The person who was being farewelled was fairly inebriated and um, lunged at me. Through. So someone who'd been drinking uh, knocked into Grant way. and sort of caused his shirt just to be pulled, pulled up, up, up over and revealed.
2: true sticking out of his stomach. Uh, so that kind of put a bit of a damper on the whole thing. and
0: People got uncomfortable and they left. And they left. There was one person who came up to me and asked me what the tubes were for. And I uh, explained to her that I had uh, renal disease, that my kidneys didn't work anymore, and um, without a transplant, then I would die.
2: At that point, I didn't know much about kidney failure, or I didn't even know about being a donor. Surprisingly, f- um, responded by saying, Do you want my kidney?
0: You know, like you do. <laughs> That's so wholesome. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, Shelley went into surgery for three to four hours had one of her kidneys removed, which was then immediately transplanted into Grant. And not only did she save Grant's life, but Grant later reported that he felt better than he had in years and was able to get back into a lot of regular activities. And, and again, like these are people who were complete strangers initially. They didn't, they didn't know each other. They didn't have a history together. They didn't know that they'd even be... You know, she didn't even know really anything about kidney transplants and and just met a stranger who needed one. It was like, "Hey, I got an extra one. You want
1: it? <laughs> you know, i I was thinking too about this and thinking about like how donors have the pos like they could seek out those people that got their stuff and just like the weird conversations that would come out of that, like uh, like meeting me like, I'm in you right now." And it's like such an uncomfortable thing to say or think, but like, it's like this, like, you know, just those weird phrases could be like a piece of me will always be in you or a piece of me will always (laughs) be with you. Just like just people making it strange. So I'm glad that it's like that donors can't really seek them out or or they shouldn't be able to, but Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really great like example of how like that's, I mean, that's a pretty serious thing, right? Like being able to say like, I have an extra one of these things, which I might need later, but I might not. You know, or hopefully somebody will do this for me. But here I am with this extra thing here. You can have it. I'm not using as much of it. I've thought about this a little bit. Not donating my kidneys, but other donation stuff. And I'm just like, why not? I'm not using it right now. Yeah. So I guess what are we talking about here?
0: There are a few names for this phenomenon. Mostly this is referred to as an altruistic donation. I think that I'm going to call this extreme altruism. Because it seems like a little bit more than just an altruistic donation to me. (laughs) People going above and beyond. And as we'll see when we get into the numbers, it's just a small number of people who are willing to do something like this, you know, and understandably too. So the big question here is, why would someone be willing to undergo a risky surgery that provides no benefit to them whatsoever for someone to whom they have no personal connection? Right. That's Right, I think an easy, easy thing to look at the situation and ask,
1: how does that come about? Right. And you see in these stories, you, both Shelley and Damien expressed that they saw an opportunity to help someone and they wanted to do so, never mentioning what they were going to get out of it, never mentioning that they wanted to get something out of it, that they just offered that they wanted to help. And in fact... Concerned about the state of mind of somebody who's willing to do this when we start looking at these, studies have actually gone and studied people like Shelly and Damien wondering why somebody would be willing to do this. They've investigated that profile of somebody willing to donate their organ to a stranger. And the original assumption is that these are thrill seekers and people desperate for attention. I don't know. If I were a thrill seeker, I probably wouldn't just give up a part of my body. I'd probably... I'd probably be fine with losing a part of my body as a result of some activity. Like if I like tried to learn how to flip a monster truck and got into an accident and lost a part of my finger, I'd be like, here's a cool story. Like, but I wouldn't like willingly give up a part of my body i wouldn't like clip off a piece of my finger to be like thrill seeking attention seeking like i guess there are people out there that do that maybe but well
0: that's what they were concerned about there someone's like
1: uh i need i need the next big rush here take out my lung doc <laughs> i only need one the original assumption is that the these thrill seekers were well that was the original assumption that they were thrill seekers but the surveys conducted Instead, they indicated that there's an overwhelming majority of people that are good people with an interest in helping others. Many of them have a history of donating such as time, money, blood, and several actually go on to donate additional spare organs. So there are people out there who exist just to give away those things that they have access to. Like they're they're essentially using their privilege to to help others. Human farm. Uh Uh-huh. It's creepy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And- Obviously, whenever we look at anything that seems unique, someone's going to be interested in looking at the brains of these people. So, some people have done this, and they they want to look at the brains of these what I'm calling extreme altruistic people, and report uh, these these studies have reported that the people who are willing to donate like this have generally larger than average brains, and they specifically noticed a larger amygdala. A matter of fact. There's this whole TEDx talk about this that you can find. The issue with this, of course, is that doesn't suggest a cause-effect relationship, just a correlational one. We happen to find that these people who donate also have these larger brains, these larger amygdalas. We don't know what the exact cause-effect relationship there, and I, I would definitely argue that there were a lot of things in life that fostered the development of that brain that had them be in the context where they made that choice. Not that they were just given like big brain means you donate organs. Right, right, right. Something I think is important to point out because there are those people who I think are extremely self serving, who are very transactional, who see donations and philanthropy, generally speaking, as being stupid because it doesn't benefit the individual. And they seem to think that if you are not serving yourself, then you are a failure of evolution. And I think this is one example of why that's absolutely not the case, among many others. Right. But just to to squash that that sort of almost, I don't know what to call it. It's almost like... It's faulty reasoning. Yeah, faulty reasoning, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things where it goes like... Because at the end of the day, like if you, okay, so you do something like that, it doesn't necessarily benefit you in that moment directly, right? But it does benefit the community. It does benefit the tribe overall, right? It's like probably like an extreme example of pro-social behavior.
0: Yeah, the, that is, I agree. So again, just looking at asking the question, sort of what are the motivations that people have? Like, why would they do this? And under what conditions would they do it?
1: One of the sources that we reviewed specifically points out that people sometimes change their mind and that's Okay right? Some people do that, but that those who wish to do this do it because it's in line with their values, right? They, they are specifically engaging in behavior that lines up with their values overall. And, and these people who feel rewarded by seeing others succeed, these are the same kind of people who see the benefit of a stranger as the benefit of the human species as a whole. You see people that just kind of just look at the general good and, and kind of approach those as particular values. Now for them, the payoff is that another person's life is lengthened. And in donating, I'd allow that person to enjoy more time to experience life and spend time with loved ones and save that person from experiencing chronic pain. So, th- even though it's not going to be like a direct benefit to that person just feeling good about that outcome is part of the reason why people do these things.
0: Right, and this this idea of cooperation and altruism, part of the reason that people do it is because they're inherently rewarding because we all succeed when one of us succeeds. We ex- we succeed as a species, when our species succeeds, when any, any member of that species succeeds. So, you know, there's, I think a general sort of embedded
1: payoff for people who are philanthropic, I guess, in their endeavors. Yeah, absolutely. But as inquisitive and queried people... We tend to want to ask more questions. So we do have other questions here. And the first question that we want to ask in this is why living donor organs? Why would we do that instead of deceased organs? Why take them from dead people?
0: Yeah, because you might be thinking, why didn't these people just like get on the organ donor list? And then when they inevitably pass away, then they will be able to donate the organs because plenty of people do die that could be donated their organs, which is true. All right. Here are the reasons why living donors are a choice that some might favor. Living donor kidneys last longer than deceased donor kidneys, a lot longer. Matter of fact, they're pretty much indefinite, whereas kidneys that come from a deceased owner often will last only maybe five-ish years uh, for many of them. Right. And so alternatively, the deceased the kidney that comes from a deceased donor does not last
1: as long as the living donor kidney would. Yep, absolutely. So living donor kidneys work better because they are outside the recipient's body for less time than, the, than our deceased ki- donor kidneys, where... A deceased donor kidney may not work as well because that donor kidney is outside of the donor's body for a longer period of time. When somebody's deceased, it's not it's usually um that process would look like they would go into surgery near the same time.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. They pull like they just cut it out of one person and just bring it over to the next one.
1: Yeah, like they can just kind of just straight. It's like, it's like when you have like a stack of books and you don't know where to put them. So you just move them over to a different shelf. Like you kind of do that in that moment, the shelves are near each other. You just kind of like move it over. And that's what happens rather than going to grab a stack of books from a, from a store and then having to bring it into the house and put it somewhere. So that's a great analogy. (laughs) Well, the books are outside of your house longer. That's right.
0: Another one is that the patient waits a couple of weeks or months for living donor kidney transplant based on the speed of donor evaluation. But a patient will wait on average for five years for a kidney from a deceased donor to get the transplant.
1: In this situation, uh, surgery can be scheduled in advance. Whereas like with a deceased kidney, it kind of happens like, you know, you find out that you get it and then all of a sudden your your surgery is scheduled. Like it's like, oh, uh, we have this kidney. You've got a 48 hour window. Let's go. Right. I mean, it's probably longer than that, but yeah. it should be longer than that. But you don't have a lot of time. Like it's kind of a sudden sudden get right versus like, oh, we can schedule this. We know when I'm going to get my kidney. People
0: who who are able to receive a kidney donation from a living donor and get that transplanted might be able to have that done before they have to even start dialysis. And because of that, patients who spend less time on dialysis means that they're ultimately going to have better health overall because dialysis can help, but isn't a perfect replacement for what our kidneys do.
1: And then at the end of all this, doctors actually know more about the the living donor's health and the possible risks for the recipient compared to they don't know as much about the deceased donor's health and and there's uh there's actually a higher risk for the recipient at that point in time not a, a a huge great risk but definitely a higher risk in comparison to a living donor right
0: okay so let's get into some of the information about th- there's other questions i think that there's a lot of vocabulary that came up during this there's a lot of considerations so let's dig into some terms here
1: uh-huh.
0: First is, and we've mentioned this term a bunch of times, but what is altruism? A lot of people have heard this term. Probably many of our listeners already know what it means. But in case you didn't, altruism is the sort of selfless regard, and act of kindness toward others. This is doing things for other people without any benefit to yourself. Going out of your way to help somebody else, even though doing so might not only not be a benefit to you, but might even be an inconvenience to you in some way. And I definitely think that
1: donating an organ to some stranger falls <laughs> into that category. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Then there's also the idea of self-directed, which is anonymous. It's when we talk about this in, in donation terms, we're talking about anonymous, anonymity, but this answers the specific plea of a person in need of an organ. So this is going to be somebody who is explicitly donating anonymously, but donating because there is a specific call for it.
0: Yeah. So for example, for people who maybe watch the TV show American Ninja Warrior, Mm -hmm. there was one of the participants on that who was raising awareness about some specific people who were on the list to receive. I I believe they were kidneys. And so someone might see that and then go to the website and offer to donate their organ to that person. So even though they're anonymous, they don't have a connection to that person. They are they know of someone who is in need and so they would donate. And so that'd be self-directed. Right. Then there's these non-directed and these are also anonymous and that's just people who donate an organ assuming that someone is going to need it. They're like you know they're <laughs> like you know what there's got to be people out there who need part of my kidney so doc just cut out my kidney go give it to the next guy in line or the next person in line who needs it.
1: Yeah, and also as a recommendation don't do this yourself. Like don't show up at a doctor's office with your kidney in hand and be like, "Here. Someone might need this." Like you should probably Go to a doctor to do that i imagine it's probably dangerous to like you know end up in an ice bath because you ended up cutting out your own kidney now there are some ethical considerations that go along with this right as there should be when it comes to organ harvesting or donating and all these things the 2005 ethics committee of the transplantation society quotes the use of living donors is ethical provided that the aggregate benefits to the donor recipient pair outweigh the risk to the donor-recipient pair, end quote. Which essentially just means it's fine as long as nobody's at a very high risk or it puts somebody at a higher risk than it's worth the payout.
0: Right, and that ultimately what that means is that there's going to be more benefit than the possible risk that there might be. Yeah. Another consideration here comes from the United Network of Organ Sharing, or UNOS, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's how they pronounce it, but that's what it looks like. Uh-huh. And they say that, quote, living non-directed donation is an ethically justifiable form of organ donation, provided that a strict standard of informed consent is followed. The competent potential donor undergoes appropriate evaluation and organs are allocated in an equitable manner, end quote. And again, it makes a lot of sense because thinking about the fact that these doctors take Hippocratic oaths, that they are committed to doing no harm means that they find themselves in a tricky position trying to understand ethically what the considerations are when someone is asking for a surgery from which they will not benefit in order to provide assistance to somebody who does need the surgery for which they're asking to undergo. And so they kind of had to work out these ethical guidelines. And I think that these ones make a lot of sense.
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. In a follow-up verbal report too, so far people report feeling satisfied with having done the donation. There have not really been any reported long-term consequences. I can't imagine that somebody's going to be like on their deathbed going, "Ah, I wish I would have kept that kidney. (laughs) Right. There's no evidence of that happening is what we're saying. So
0: far. Yeah. So far. It's so good. So the other thing is, and we mentioned this a little bit already, but is just understanding the motivations and and seeing what people's motivations have been. And they they were looking for people who are thrill seekers, expecting to find some attention seekers, expecting to find some. Another one is they were concerned that there might be people who have some kind of underlying mental health condition that has them making questionable choices, which is I think understandable. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other thing that they really have found more than anything, which are these people who they've looked at these profiles of people who view themselves as belonging to sort of the larger human species as a community rather than just sort of their niche group. So it's not just sort of my religious sect or my political sect or my, my group of friends and family, like My family is the only thing that matters. The rest of the human race can die off as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Those people are not going to be donating organs. Right. But those people who view us as like, we are the human species. We want the human species to thrive. Therefore, I'm going to do my part to help the human species thrive. Those people who have that kind of frame of mind, they're the people who are much more likely to show up and do this. And then their motivations tend to be, I want to help other people. I want to see other people succeed. I've got the capability to do this, so I will. That seems to be where the motivations have mostly
1: actually been observed and there's also something called pathological altruism and this is something to consider too is that some people will are are so they value this so much and they are so entrenched in helping others that there is this level that at some point in time it becomes harmful to them right so this is essentially the example of pathological altruism would be like you donate so much of your time that you actually start getting sick because you don't have time for the things that are necessary, right? Like you start actually like you're so busy all the time that you're actually causing harm to your own health and well-being. Or that you start donating all of your money to the point that now you can't pay your mortgage, you can't feed yourself, you can't buy clothes and now you're putting yourself at a detriment as a result of giving too much. So there are some folks that want to give, give and give and give and give and give and give so much that they can actually put themselves at a higher risk, right? If you donate too much blood, you can actually put yourself at a really high risk of health risks as, as a result. So there is that possible motivation. It doesn't happen very often. And obviously you're not going to have somebody that's going to like go and donate a kidney and then be like, man, I feel good. I just donated my kidney. You should just take the other one. Like there's no, there's, there are (laughs) stop gaps in place that are going to prevent that. Right? Like, Hey, you said 60% of my liver, go ahead and take 70. Right. We're fine. Let's gamble. Let's roll the dice. Like there's not, there's, there are a lot of stop gaps for that type of thing, but There is the possibility that this pathological altruism can exist within these motivations.
0: So as we mentioned, the people who are helping to do the the surgery, to collect the donation from the person who's doing the donating, they need to essentially screen the people who are coming in for a lot of reasons. And one is just basic eligibility, as well as sort of looking at motivations. So things to consider, Uh, people who are eligible to donate include as young as newborns. And as old as 65 years old, they're probably not going to be harvesting organs from newborns who are living. These are those who, who don't make it through infancy. and then the parents have the opportunity to, if they want, consent to have those organs donated. when I actually read some very heartwarming stories in this research about children who were born with severe defects that because another child who was a match, had not made it through their infancy. They were able to replace, uh, one of the stories I was reading, a heart with this other child's heart and save that kid's life. And then that kid grew up to be a healthy, strong, you know, functioning, contributing member of the world, which is great. But anyway, uh, beyond that, those are the, the groups of the people who are eligible to donate. Uh, they obviously are looking for people who don't have any major illnesses. You don't want to be donating people who are overweight. They require that you are a non-smoker and they're going to do just general health checks with, you know, blood checks and whatnot. They're also looking for genetic markers for things that might be dangerous or pathological to the person receiving it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that psychological screener that I mentioned of are you doing this because it's a rush? Are you doing this because, like, you're desperate for attention? Or are you doing this because you have the intention of just helping other people?
1: An interesting fact here, an interesting thing to consider is my, my grandmother donated a ton of organs when she had passed away. So she donated, I want to say like her eyeballs, some of her liver, her kidneys, like she donated some organs that she had, but she had passed away from lung cancer. So what they found is when they screened those organs, that those organs were not affected by her lung cancer. Her lung cancer was centralized in, in her lungs. So obviously they couldn't use her lungs for any sort of organ transplant. But the other side of that is the donation side. was not just for transplants. It was also for science in studying those things. And so what we found really interesting was that she was an organ donor and nobody knew about it. So when she passed away, everybody was kind of like, excuse me, yeah, like you're doing what? Like she had it in her will that she was going to be a donor. And so they were able to like, so, so somebody has her eyeballs somewhere. Somebody has her kidney, somebody has part of her liver. And then, so we, and we received her ashes after, I think it was like three years that she was also part of a study. Wow. So like what we're talking about here is that this is different than like deceased donors who have died of an illness, who have organs that can be used. Like this is specifically talking about living donors and the process for living donors to go through this, right?
0: Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm sure that there are some screeners as much as possible when they're uh, receiving from deceased donors as well. But as we mentioned earlier, they don't always have that information. So they kind of do the best that they can with what they've got. Right. So, okay. The next part of this is really interesting. It's a little complicated, but I think that I can explain it in a way that makes sense. There's something called domino kidney paired donation, which is sort of the colloquial term. It's actually called a non-simultaneous extended altruistic donor chain or N E A D. I know. And then they sort of playfully refer to this just as a daisy chain for some reason. Mm -hmm. And essentially what happens is that you have a bunch of people who volunteer to donate, but they aren't necessarily matches. And so what happens is they, they basically hook up in sort of this, this chain of people who can donate to the people they wanted to donate to in an exchange. Essentially, the way that it works is like, let's say, for example, I wanted to donate to, or that, let, let's say, Shane, that your partner needed a kidney mm-hmm. and you wanted to donate a kidney, but you weren't a match. But I happen to be a match for your partner. And also, my partner needed a kidney, but I wasn't a match, but you were a match for my partner. Mm-hmm. So basically, what happens is we both donate a kidney. Mine goes to your partner and yours would go to mine. Well, these can happen in these big chains where you've got like this person's kidney goes like they want to donate to someone that they know, but they're not a match. But there is someone else who needs to donate who would be a match. So you donate to the person that they were going to donate to. They donate to the person you are going to donate to. And you can actually get these long chains going on of people donating to move kidneys all over the place yeah. to help fill in those those needs where they exist. And John Hopkins performed the first paired kidney donation or PKD in 2001 They did their first triple swap, but they had three people in 2003, their first double and triple domino in 2005, their first five way (laughs) domino in 2006, their first six way domino in 2007, and their first transcontinental three way
1: swap in 2007
0: as well. So we just got (laughs) organs flying all over the place right now.
1: That sounds like something you would like go to Amsterdam for in the red light district. It like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I see you offer all these services and all this really great sex work, but, um, do you have the first transcontinental three-way swap? Can we do that? <laughs> so also this is a really great way that everybody becomes best friends. This is actually how the process of, be- if you want to understand why people become best friends, this is how. It's like, oh, you got my organ. I got their organ. And here we are. We're swapping organs. Now we're best friends. Let's go get pizza. There have never been best friends besides those who have swapped organs. (laughs) (laughs) That's for the rest of you people who have best friends. We, we, they're pseudo best friends. That's right. Not really. They're false friends. So this match kidney exchange, essentially what happens is a recipient and willing donor pairs with somebody who is incompatible. And are matched and exchange kidneys with another incompatible donor or recipient pair. So so basically what's happening is in this exchange, you're trying to match up those folks that actually do match up. So hey, you're willing to donate, but not for this person. They need to go to this other person.
0: So I was really curious how often it is the case that you get these non-directed anonymous donations where you just sort of a living donor puts out into the world their organ. By the calculations from the website, I found there were 2,730. Non directed donations between 2002 and 2015 in the United States, which increased from about 1.1% of donations to about 3.1% of donations over that 13 year time span, which is pretty good. And that's also like, that's really cool and, and very inspiring to see. Yeah. Interestingly, New Zealand has one of the highest rates of living donor donations. And
1: kind of ironically, I think, one of the lowest rates of deceased organ donations. Hmm, that's interesting. This is also a lot of these surgeries are funded by the American healthcare system known as GoFundMe. If you're not familiar (laughs) with this, it is a, a website. I can't even follow through that joke. Oh my gosh. Uh, statements on public health systems. Okay. So organ disease is a massive public health issue and organ transplantation can be a life-saving treatment option. So there's a necessity for this. And there are as many people dying per year of organ disease as there are on the transplant waiting list currently. And so people are, it's, it's, it's amazing how much need there is. I mean, I don't think I realized how much need there was until we started putting together this episode. And there is the question of like, what can you do? To help what can we do here and there's just we're just finding more and more and more that there's just such a need and just we're not meeting that need so in 2018 nearly five percent of liver transplants
0: were made possible thanks to living donors who stepped forward to save lives which is i mean just extremely generous and extremely altruistic as i've been yeah. saying so yeah i've been curious too of why we are seeing this increase you know as low as one percent and actually some of the the sources that i found essentially suggested that as late as the 90s and the late 90s, this was virtually unheard of. Doctors wouldn't even do it. They wouldn't consider it because they were thinking, why would you do this thing? And how could we ethically follow through on the request to do this thing? Right. Since they started looking into it, developing guidelines and safety and all that has increased, we have started to see more and more people do this sort of thing. And so I was kind of curious looking into why this might be increasing. One of the reasons this is probably increasing is because of these awareness campaigns that have been going on of letting, you know, of just sharing stories like this, like we've been doing here. of just saying, hey, this is a thing that happens sometimes. And for the the one person who hears this and says, wow, that's something I feel like I could do and they reach out and then do it then they're you know increasing that number and they these campaigns continue to happen and i think that's part of it
1: yeah, I mean, another part, too, is opportunity, right? You're going to see probably higher rates of living organ donation in countries that can actually support that type of thing. I imagine, and this was something we didn't really look into that I'm aware of, but um, looking at the, the organ donation rates in, in countries that have less of a healthcare infrastructure, you know, you might see less of an increase in those areas because it may not be as safe or the opportunities may not be as important or apparent. And
0: speaking of that, you're absolutely right that what has happened is with better and better surgical techniques with better equipment, with better technology, we've seen increases in safety, and so those complications have just been extremely low and decreasing, and complications resulting in death are just you know a fraction of a percent and very unlikely and I didn't look into it, but I would imagine that these were people who are probably a little bit riskier to begin with as donors, yeah. which is why we need to have those screeners because ultimately. Ideally, there should be zero deaths from people who do this. But hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Another thing is that we actually see some upticks in this when the world when things get worse, (laughs) generally speaking, in the world, the world's on fire. You know, uh, when there are literal fires like Australia's on fire, but or when California was on fire, but also when we see like the the rise of authoritarianism, we see the rise of extreme hatred and fear-mongering and xenophobia and jingoism happening all over the place and it like as a counter to that we get this sort of counter rise in extreme altruism and kindness and generosity that happens so there are people who see the state of the world and say this is terrible i want to help and i think that that is in no way to say like that authoritarian tyrannical governments are good because it it generates this reciprocal response they're not but
1: a fallout of those things happening can be people doing really kind things so in the United States, I can guarantee almost, I mean, I would, I would bet a lot on it that over the last four years, we have seen an uptick in living donors, mostly in response to seeing Mitch McConnell as a human being. <laughs> like, it's like, this is terrible. <laughs> Here's my kidney. I have a real chin. I'd like to donate to the man with that one. <laughs> <laughs> do they do partial chin chin implants like partial chin transplants probably it's like i have too much chin this guy needs help yeah he's like the poster child for chin transplants. it's just there's a waddle where a chin used to be oh man i that's that's you know it's i i always hear in the back of my head whenever i do whenever i like get smarmy like that i'm like you know i hear michelle obama in the back of my head saying when they go low we go high but every now and again it just feels good to go low i mean we're punching up right so it's fine it's fine that's fair um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we, we should go high, uh, and particularly because weed is
0: legal in Nevada, but just kidding. Yeah,
1: there you go. And, and medical is legal in Florida, so it all
0: works. Now, we've already touched on the ethical considerations, so we'll just go through these fairly quickly. But as we said, these organizations have stated that they believe in most cases, living non-directed donation is an ethically justifiable form of organ donation so long as there is that strict standard of informed consent that incorporates information disclosure specific to non-directed donor that's followed to the non-directed donor and that there is a a competent potential that the, the donor, the potential donor is competent and
1: undergoes appropriate medical, psychosocial and ethical evaluation and screening. Donors are also protected from undue influence and coercion. Could you imagine like being talked into giving your kidney away? It's like, Hey, you should really do this or else. Oh, uh, okay. That's a little stressful. Yeah. You're a terrible person you're a terrible person yeah you're real yeah so that that becomes a uh, if you want to raise you got to give away part of your liver oh all right that's a little little extreme but i guess uh, i really want the ceo job and respect is given to the individual's autonomous decisions while minimizing their exposure to the risk right so the, so there is that respect given to that person who is undergoing that process of course as we mentioned
0: benefits need to outweigh the risks to the potential donor by donating regardless of the kinds of benefits to be differentially gained by the non director donor compared to the directed donor. And again, that there are safeguards in place to assure anonymity between the potential donor and the candidate unless they both agree to contact each other, and preferably with the, the recipient being on the initiating end of that contact.
1: Yeah. And finally, organs are allocated in an equitable manner according to existing policies. Now, I would be really interested to see to what degree Cause I mean, we, we understand, like, if you understand the concept of how racist policies exist, I'm interested, like when they say equitable, how equitable is it based on those policies that were probably not produced in a, in an anti-racist way. So I'm interested that we didn't dig into that part either. That wasn't the goal of this episode, but that is probably something worth looking at is a healthcare system designed to be problematic for certain populations, how equitable it can be within those policies. I had the exact
0: same thought. And unfortunately as you said, we we didn't dive into it too much, but I, I had the thought of thinking, you know, I wonder how well those policies have been reviewed to ensure that there is actual equitable distribution and undercuts the otherwise uh, racist history that guides some of the policies
1: that do exist. I imagine that in the current state, it's probably not getting to the people who need it or it's not. It's disproportionately getting to different people like, yeah. I, I mean, for a fact, it's got to be, it's just a matter of just what that data looks like and how severe it is.
0: Yeah. There's some interesting tidbits, some other interesting things that I thought would be fun to share. One is that this organ's coming out at the end of March. Just so you all know, March is apparently
1: kidney month. Did you just replace the word episode with organ? Did I? You said this organ's <laughs> coming out in the month of March. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That is my favorite. That's my favorite. That's the best thing ever. Wow! What a great.
0: <laughs> okay, um, we'll leave that in. Despite how silly that's going to sound, this episode's coming out at the end of March, and an organ is coming with it. Bonus surprise. <laughs>
1: yeah, but that's actually for the highest Patreon tier. So we <laughs> we're really trying to support this. So you know, for I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars, you can get part of a liver. So wow, one of our livers. I don't know. Maybe we haven't set up that tier yet. <laughs> So in most countries, it is illegal to buy and sell human organs for transplants. Who'd have thought it? But international black markets for organs are growing in response to increased demand around the world. I actually read a book called Kiss Me Judas, which is a a fiction book, but it immediately starts off with somebody waking up in a bathroom, missing a kidney.
0: Yikes. Yeah. Okay. One deceased donor can save up to eight lives through organ donations and can save and enhance more than a hundred lives through life-saving and healing gift of tissue donation. So if you sign up to be an organ donor as part of your, as you said, with your grandma did with your will, as part Mm -hmm. of your driver's license, you can volunteer as an organ donor. You can save a lot of people's lives by doing that.
1: And also too, in the meantime, like besides that, like with living donors, like besides donating organs, donating blood, donating marrow, I hear donating marrow is pretty painful though. I'm going to look into it. Yeah. It's, it's, they drew have to drill into your bone. That sounds great. It's very metal. (laughs) Yeah. Organ recipients are selected based primarily on medical need, location, and compatibility. So that's why that list will vary so much when you start seeing that as the compatibility might change or the information gets updated.
0: There have been over 700,000 transplants in the United States since
1: 1988. The vast majority of those coming from deceased donors. Organs can be donated after death. The ones that can be are the heart, liver, kidneys, lungs, pancreas, and small intestines. Tissues can include cornea, skin, veins, heart valves, tendons, ligaments, and bones. The cornea is actually the most commonly transplanted tissue. There have been more than
0: 40,000 corneal transplants taking place each year in the United States as far back as they've been doing them.
1: Yeah, and I mentioned this before, but a healthy person can become a living donor by donating a kidney or part of their liver, lung, intestine, blood, or bone marrow. Yeah, and
0: they're actually, from that period of 2000, I think it's 2010 to 2015, There has not been one living donor to donate intestine or lung. Oh. Nobody has done those in at least that time. I'm not sure that anyone in the United States has actually ever done one of those, but it is something that you can do.
1: Given the rise of COVID and like some of the scarring that happens to lungs as a result, I imagine that that might start to see an uptick or the need for that might start to see an uptick. Oh, yeah. That's a good point.
0: There are about 6,000 living donations every year, but the vast majority of those are people who are related to the person that they're donating to. So we gave the number earlier about the non-directed anonymous donations, but there are actually a lot of living donations, but it's mostly family member to family member in some capacity. There are one in four that are not related, although they often know each other. And then there's that very, so that's about 25%. And then there's that 1.1 to 3% of that are people who are anonymous, don't know the person at all that are living
1: donors. Interesting stuff. And finally, buying and selling of human organs is not allowed for transplants in America as far as transplants go, but it is allowed for research purposes. So you can purchase organs if you're doing research. I imagine there's still some some stop gaps and some like, okay, what's your research? What's your IRB? Like, what facility do you work with? I imagine you can't just be like, I'm doing research in this part of Alabama. You have to be really careful with that.
0: This is really to protect people that from being exploited, where you have someone who's very wealthy saying like, Hey, I'm going to give your family a million dollars. You give me your lungs. This will kill you, but your family is going to be set up for life. Like that's a very coercive situation that we don't want people to end up in. So it has been made illegal to avoid those coercive practices. Absolutely. And also like holding it over someone's head, you know, donate to me or else, you gonna know, lose your job or I'll crush your family or whatever. Yeah. And I guess in that case, it's not a donation. It's sell to me. <laughs> sell me that sweet pancreas. Yeah, Give me that
1: sweet pancreas. With that being said, too, you know, when we talk about that research purpose thing, I before these regulations came into play, this was allowed. I mean, d- like you could buy like human skeletons like if you were not a research facility. As a matter of fact, if you go to Disneyland or Disney World on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, there are legitimate human skeletons that are in those rides that were medical skeletons that were purchased by Disney and put in there because the fake skeletons that they created didn't look real enough. Gross. To the degree that today, like they, they went through and they're like, okay, so it was purchased before all these policies and all these things came out and the imagineers couldn't actually create a, a, a real life looking skeleton. They're still there. So you can still go and there is a human skeleton on that ride somewhere. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's gross <laughs> on that. If you'd like to learn more
0: about any of these things that we just talked about, you can visit donate life.org or kidney.org to learn about is the simple statistics, FAQs, programs, awareness campaigns. And if you're interested in donating or if you want to just donate money to the cause, anything, if you you're you want to find out more, just go to those websites. Yeah. Uh, you have anything else before we wrap up?
1: I honestly don't. I mean, I, I'm going to admit that like this is probably one of the most interesting episodes that I've been a part of because it's just been so much fun to kind of dig into this and look at all the nuance and Complexity that goes along with this.
0: There was some tear-jerking moments reading the research for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was I'm sure, yeah, it, it, it was a lot. So I think take-home points here are that this is an amazing thing, and I think that you can't really ask people to do this, but to say that if there are people out there who have the capacity and the drive and the willingness to be a living donor. That could be enormously, enormously helpful to somebody in need. Mm -hmm. If that's something you could be on the path for, then great. If not, this is not something that a lot of people are going to be able to do for a lot of reasons. A lot of health reasons, a lot of financial reasons. I didn't actually, we didn't get into this, but for most of the surgeries, the recipients, insurance should pay for the entire operation, hospital stay and everything for the donor What they are unlikely to do is pay for any time off work that you might miss from doing it. So that's something that you've got to plan for. Maybe you're retired, you know, and then it it would be a workable situation there. But this is a a big ask and it's a big ask that I think you can't make of most people. And I think I'm personally interested in potentially contributing to this, although I'm not sure how I could arrange my life in such a way that I could take that, you know, two to four months to recover from a surgery like that right now. But I aspire to be one of these people and I'm definitely in support of it. For those people for whom this is a safe thing to do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I don't have any other take on points, but, but other than just, just look into it, at least if you're considering helping, if this is something, if if this is a way that you want to help something as simple as donating blood can be really powerful and really effective. So if you want to start small and that's something you can do, it's worth looking at even deceased organ donation. Is worth considering at that point in time, you know, so I think, I think just looking into this, if you really are somebody who wants to help and you, and you want to consider this living donors, yes, it's a little extreme. It does exist. Deceased organ donation, perfectly worth looking at and and kind of evaluating how useful that can be.
0: Yeah. And and I actually, we we didn't talk about this either, but that did remind me that there is this myth that. If you are on the operating, like if you're in an accident or something and you're on the operating table and they see that you're an organ donor, that they won't work very hard to save you and they might just let you die so that they can donate your organs to somebody else. There is no evidence that this is true. And all of the evidence in the world that this is completely false, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, first of all, like they might be trying to find organs to save your life if they need to. Right. if, if, If you had like a punctured lung or something in an accident. They've performed an oath to to do no harm, and th- there's really no incentive or reason for this at all. So, right, there's just no evidence that that's ever the place. Like doctors are trying to help you and save your life, there are irresponsible malpractice doctors out there, but they make up a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the doctors available.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't have any other take home points other than that.
0: Let's do some recommendations. Ta da. Recommendations. All right. So I am going to recommend a music video today. It is called Strawberries Wake by the band Dance Gavin Dance off of their most recent album Afterburner, which came out in 2020. I put a link in the show notes and it's just a silly, fun music video, but I've been, uh, it's it's kind of weird in a way, but I've been kind of just watching it like four or five times over the last week
1: and, uh, and I really hmm. like it. And so I, yeah. I think other people would too. I am a big fan of music videos. I've always just loved music videos because it it makes me actually like for some some songs it enhances the song for me. So, yeah, absolutely. I can. All right. My recommendation is an album by a band called Cloud Kicker. And I say band loosely because it is one man who is a pilot. And so he travels a bunch and he just started kind of writing some riffs and and doing some loops and and putting some stuff together. But this album is called Solitude. It came out in 2020. He was not working as much, so he wrote this whole album in pretty much his like living room and his basement and kind of in this in this really confined space. And it's just really good fun instrumental stuff, but if you like kind of like technical, mathy kind of heavy instrumental metal like that, It's definitely worth checking out when he plays live, he, his backing band is intronaut. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like, that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of music this is like, it's very proggy, like technical stuff. So he gets intronaut to be his backing band.
0: That's a, that's awesome. Intronaut's great.
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, he has a live record that is on Spotify that you can check out and it is great. And it is intronaut playing as the backing band for him.
0: Wow. All right, cool. Our recommendation. All right. Well, um, if you are donating organs as a living donor, um, we definitely like to hear that story. If you are donating organs as a deceased organ donor, we'd like to hear your story. (laughs) If anything you'd like to say about organ donation or Dance Gavin Dance or Cloud Kicker, or you are people who are intimately familiar with any of those things, then please reach out to us. We'd love to share your story. Yep. You can reach us at info at www.dwwdpodcast.com. That's also our handle on all of the social media platforms, and we will respond to you. As I mentioned, you can support us by joining Patreon, subscribe to our channel, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, just get in contact with us. We love hearing from people.
1: Yep, for sure, for sure. All right, this is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron. By heading to Patreon.com/wwdwwdPodcast, you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to wwdwwdPodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.
1: Why living donor organs instead of diseased organs? Like, why are we looking at living donors versus diseased organs that do exist? Sorry, it's supposed to be deceased. I'm sorry. <laughs> deceased. <laughs> oh, just I mean, it makes um, sense why a diseased organ wouldn't be given away. Yeah. It's like, oh, this lung has a lot of cancer. <laughs> it might work for a little bit. Yeah. Good luck.